This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com. This week, Meat and Three is taking you to market and all over the world, from Newfoundland to Tunisia. Well, a lot of us think of, you know, the British Empire trading things like spices and sugar and silk. But you write that it actually began with salt cod from Newfoundland. <laughs> there was a port closure in Tunisia, which was horrible. I mean, it was months. Boats just setting on the water waiting to go and they couldn't go anywhere. And we'll learn about how markets have changed, whether because of their customers or the climate. A few years ago, something around 10 years, it was totally different. It almost manifests itself to almost smelling like an old fire pit. When you, mm-hmm. you put it out, it has that sort of charcoal-y smell to it. It's not good for wine. Join us this week on Meet and 3 for our global market tour. And don't forget to subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 150 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I know they are all listening and a little bit heartbroken that this, on Tuesday, August 13th, 2019, is the last episode of the summer season, which is kind of hard to believe. It's gone by so quickly, we're going to have a quick couple weeks summer break and then we'll be back after Labor Day. But when I was looking at the planning for the scheduling and the guests and everything and I saw the final episode of the summer season, it made me a little nostalgic and it also made me want to know what's coming in the fall. We need to do like a big fall preview episode like, you know, the way the magazines do. I think of big fall preview as magazines. Maybe that dates me. You know, the big, the big issue that you get. That's like a double issue because the magazine's on vacation also. Followed immediately by the big fat September issue. So we have a couple ladies in the studio today to help us take a look at wrapping up the summer and taking a look towards the fall. We have return guest Gabriella Gershenson, who is a prolific journalist in the food lifestyle category. Sub, subcategory culture, perhaps? Sure. She's been on the show a bunch of times. She did a fantastic show with us about online grocery shopping, the benefits, the perils, the terribleness. And she was back last year for our roundup show for 2018. So this is apropos, I think, that you're doing a look forward show now. I can't wait. I live my life in the future, unfortunately. That's how deadlines work. So I, yeah, I'm in. How far in the future do you live as a journalist? Um, all the holidays are pretty much over. <laughs> all the holidays are pretty much over. So, I mean, peel, pull, pull back the curtain a little bit for the public out there who might not understand what exactly that means. You write for still many print publications. Yes, it's, um, it's a pleasure to write for print and for uh, digital um, because of the nature of things, not to make it uh, transactional, but print does tend to pay more. But these days... Digital titles are bucking up and compensating writers a little better, so that's really nice to see. Um, but I, I guess I su- can't disclose what the story is, but yesterday I was reporting for a December issue of a 
certain food glossy magazine and it's you know text is due around the corner um but i remember when i was working for the like rachel ray every day you know summer grilling was happening in the dead of winter and <laughs> it's like by the time you hit you know thanksgiving like you've eaten so many turkeys that it's you feel like you've already done it it's 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 not an unpleasant way to live but like you know the the freshness and the expectation of the holiday it kind of it's a little dampened by that so Thanksgiving is already done in the food media world. I would imagine so. I've been freelancing now for three years, so I'm not quite in with lockstep with the magazine schedules. But yes, I think that right now, probably December, January, February are happening. So if you are a business or any type of entity that wants to promote product event or things like that, if you want to be in a glossy magazine for the holiday issue you better get on it now because the door's about to close which is crazy yeah publicists should take note too (laughs) (laughs) good publicists would know what the publishing calendar is so seated next to gabriella we have our very own kat johnson who has also been on the show before she also brings her Lazy dog. Lazy. Well, yeah, I didn't know. I was going to say sidekick. I was going to yeah, say you could call her a sidekick. mascot, office mascot, because she's often in the um, Heritage Radio Network offices. We, we call her a- the HR department. The HR department. Yeah. Okay, perfect. <laughs> she's here also. Both of them have been on the show earlier this year. We did a great show with the Farmer's Dog, which is a really new... Um, innovative, I would say, you know, one of those disruptive type companies in the pet food category. They're sort of like the blue apron of pet dog food. No cooking required, though. No cooking required, all fresh and frozen. It's great. And the fact that they ship frozen means that they have less packaging and all that, which is great, mm-hmm. which is one of the big issues with the online grocery shopping and Indeed. other meal kits. Yeah. Yes. So Kat is here to talk about fall from the HRN point of view. And if you are just joining us for the first time ever in your entire life, it will be big news to you that this is the 10th anniversary of Heritage Radio Network. We did it. We're doing it. We're doing it. It's still happening. Absolutely. It's still the 10th anniversary. Yes. It's the whole year. We're celebrating all year long. The big thing we did this year was our Hall of Fame. So we launched the Heritage Radio Network Hall of Fame to be able to celebrate all these amazing people that have been on the radio for the past decade, uh, we have like over 12,000 episodes or something crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. So we're able to induct some 12,000 yeah. episodes. Yeah. Um, we're inducting folks into that Hall of Fame that people that have been on the radio and then embody our mission of making the world more equitable, sustainable, and delicious. So um, every month we've been putting more people in that. So keep an eye out every month. We release it on social media and the newsletter. Amazing. Yeah. Only a couple more left winding down. Only a couple more months left winding down. Yeah. Culminating in our uh, 10th anniversary gala, which is on November 11th. Mark your calendars, 11-11. Is it usually in December? It is. So the past two years we've done this with the great people at Brooklyn Botanic Garden and Patina Events. We've done a winter in the garden gala in December. Um we decided to do it in November this year for a couple reasons. Warmer weather, hopefully, slightly warmer weather. Fall in the garden, Gala. Fall in the garden. Um, also, like, December gets into the holidays, and Thanksgiving is, speaking of Thanksgiving, is, like, weirdly late this year. 
So we didn't want to like really compete with trying to do something right after Thanksgiving because we've always done it the first Monday of December, and this year we're pushing it up and we're gonna have the party earlier. Okay, like just a whole month wait. earlier. Yeah, amazing. We just can't wait. We want to party. Woo! Yeah. So we should be releasing tickets in the next week or two. So keep an eye out for some early bird tickets to the gala. Last year's party was great. And it's also worth noting that we have our own uh, DJ. Cherish the Cherish love. Cherish the love. Cynthia Cherish Malloran, who has had a couple different shows on Heritage Radio yeah. Network. Yeah. And is a great DJ. If you follow her on social media, she's everywhere all the time. She's getting ready to do the MTV Video Awards now, I think. Oh, I just yeah. saw on social media. She's amazing. She travels all over the place, and she spins a good cocktail party playlist. Really does. Um, and we're going to have some old friends and new friends doing... It's like a taste-around event, but think about like a taste-around in the most beautiful place you could possibly be in, the Palm House at the Botanic Garden. So we'll have food from a lot of local restaurants. We have a fr- some friends coming in from out-of-town that I can't talk out-of-town about Out-of-town friends? Mm-hmm. Secret out-of-town friends? Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to want to come for that. We'll have yes. a, East coast, yeah. South, yep. North coast. You know, we have some Southerners coming. Just if a I couple. have anything to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, silent auction, um, book auction. We do a lot of really some, we have a wine toss. So. The wine toss is surprisingly <laughs> one of the most popular things, believe it or not. Sam and Ben Ruby makes a good carny. <laughs> yeah. Carney. Yeah. Exactly. Are you throwing bottles of wine? We're, We're throwing rings onto onto bottles uh, of wine. Okay, so the it's much less hazardous. Yeah, <laughs> it's ten bottles of wine stacked up like in a pyramid, with the plastic rings from the carnival, and people stand behind the line, and then they throw, try and throw the ring onto the bottle. You get three tosses for I don't even remember whatever it is. Very reasonable, super reasonable. And then if you hook, you land on one of the bottles, and you get to take it. And we have like some good bottles in there. Like we get and there's like some, some full bo- full size full size top shelf bottles. And we've of some even of gotten the some magnums sponsors. before yes. too. It's mm-hmm. like super popular. Watch out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's what's come. That's the big thing coming up in the fall. We've got a couple other smaller events happening here and there. But please come check out the gala and celebrate ten years with us. It's really beautiful. It's the only time of year when I go to the Brooklyn Botanic Garden at night. Yeah. And it's really magical. Maybe because the weather will be a little bit warmer, maybe we can go outside a little bit, too. I hope so. That would be lovely. I would love that. So, Gabriella, you've already finished the holidays. Can you tell us what's happening this holiday in terms of the trends or the fall? What are you looking forward to? What's happening? Because you do work so far in advance. Yes. um, I don't have any big holiday stories that I know of at the moment, but I have noticed, and I do have a couple of events tied into this. There's a lot of really great Jewish food books coming out, so maybe not, you know. I noticed that. They had the best, I'm going to get the title wrong. It's the Jewish cookbook, or the 100 Most Jewish Foods. That was earlier this year, and I was an editor on that book. That's the one I was thinking of. Um, It's exciting, though. So I guess, I mean, it is. Like a giant listicle in a book. Yeah, and people really responded to it. It's because, you know, the think that um, for Jewish people and in Jewish culture, probably because it's a diaspora culture, and food is really part of what you bring with you. You you know, food, you bring the knowledge, you bring the traditions from country to country. And, you know, there wasn't, like, a, a Jewish country until recently so you know people are just carrying their um their lives with them and and often being expelled from the countries where they lived so you know 
Jewish cooking is really like a constantly evolving, living, breathing thing. And I think because of that um, nomadic nature of Jewish people, the the food and the customs and everything, it's like so much a part of who you are. And I'm sure in a way that is really analogous to many cultures and religions, but I think because of the instability of, you know, Jewish life and Jewish people having to uproot so many times throughout their existence, there's just, this is my, you know, postulating on, on why food holds just such a personal place. But what that translates to is, you know, when I'm involved with a book, like the 100 Most Jewish Foods, or writing about the Jewish food stuff, which I do quite frequently, wow, like the opinions are, you know, just, it's, it's a delight to just see people get really worked up, you know, for better or worse. You're also in New York City, yes. which feels very strongly about Jewish food whether you're Jewish or not, simply by virtue of being in New York, things like the bagel yes. and lox and other things that are Jewish in origin, but we almost consider to be New York foods, I think, in many ways. Yeah, that's what's really interesting about Jelly. New York, that, you know, Italian food has Appetizing. become New York food, Jewish Pizza. food has yeah. become New York food, you know, Chinese food, New York food, it's just, it's a, I love, I love that about New York, um, that, you know, it's just really a place where people bring their customs, and if you like it, you like it, it becomes part of the fabric of the city. Um, I recently wrote a story about black and white cookies that had... Crazy. So much engagement from people. People are crazy about the black and white cookies. Well, it's it was fascinating because I grew up as a child of immigrants. So my Jewish food customs are really from the former Soviet Union, and they're much closer to, you know, the root of where my parents came from. But in New York, you have a really different um, Jewish food culture. And I think that a lot of that grandma food, like black and white cookies, is is a grandma food. So when people have this, um, like, you know, real attachment to a cookie that, to be honest, like, I've never had an amazing one from any bakery or deli or grocery in New York. And what I write about is the fact that the cookie itself, just, you know, on a completely non-emotional level, you eat it. Most people, whether they love it or whether they're indifferent, all agree that the cookie itself is not really all that doesn't live up to the the iconic typically hype. like the cookie itself it's a it's not really a cookie it's more like a cakey kind mm -hmm. of thing precisely yeah. they tend to be a little bit dry and a little bit flavorless and then the black and white icing is typically just very sweet so it's just like fondant on dry genoise well that's a very good um characterization so what you know the right the, yeah it's sugar Sugar on bread. I feel like I'm going to snap into a diabetic coma if I eat a big, <laughs> big black and white. Like we have a mutual, the full size one. I get them sometimes in the donut pub because they're like, that's right they're there famous. In the they're window. famous for it. And, you know, like sometimes the donut pub for, for view for listeners, for viewers, for those of you <laughs> watching at home is an old school donut shop on 14th Street at the corner of 14th and 7th Avenue. It is on the northwest corner. They now have a fancy awning, which they never used to have. It's an old school 24-hour donut coffee shop. And with the rise of donut popularity, it became more and more popular and more and more discovered as a classic New York donut shop. They don't do anything fancy or new or flavors. There's no bacon. It's your basic crawler, raised, glazed, and they are famous for their black and white cookie. Because they're fresh, mm. and but it's still just, you know, the sugar, like you said, just, it's it's sugar. It's 
The flavor is sugar. <laughs> That's un- undisputed, I think. <laughs> um, but I actually feel guilty about something. You asked me about the holidays, and I said, I don't know about the holidays, but there's these Jewish books coming out, and it's like, I happen to be a Jewish person who celebrates Jewish holidays that are coming up in September and October, so I must correct myself. There are holidays coming up, and there, and, there are, and there are things to look forward to, which are these books that really shed a lot of light on different Jewish foods, diasporic foods. Do you think that that's a trend for this fall or a trend for this year? Um, Does it just seem that way? Because there is a critical I, mass. Where we follow each other on social media, and I see your happenings and other Jewish food writers that I know. I think that um, there's a just a larger trend that's been underway for a while, which is people really embracing their heritage and just really digging in. And that's, I think, across, you know, no matter who you are, or what your background is, I think that people writing about their, you know, own food culture and how they grew up and really digging into the backgrounds of other people who they share backgrounds with, I think that's a direction we've been going in for a while. Um, but I do think it's a it's a banner year for Jewish books. Um, Leah Koenig is... Uh, She's just, I think, um, a really great contributor to the like Jewish recipe canon. She had modern Jewish cooking, and now she has one of those big Fiden books coming out. It's one of those big Bibles, and it's called the Jewish Cookbook. And I believe it's like 400 recipes, and you know, lots of unexpected countries. People don't really think about the fact that there are Jews in India, you know, um, like no. Africa, China, um, really everywhere. Uh, you know, maybe not in large numbers, but there's definitely, um, you know, if, if there are Jews there, there will be a, a recipe in Leah's cookbook. Um, Adina Sussman is a really accomplished cookbook author, and she recently um, moved to Israel full time. And she has a book coming out called Sababa, which means like cool in Hebrew. Sure. Good to know. Um, and it's about kind of her market cooking and the way she cooks, because she lives right next to the big market in Tel Aviv That's called uh, the Carmel Market. And there's a fantastic book with Anat Admoni and Jana Gore, who is, uh, she's a cookbook author from Israel, and Anat, as we know, is an Israeli um, entrepreneur and, and chef here in New York. And it is called the Shuk Cookbook, and they do a fabulous job of synthesizing um, just the polyglot, you know, Israel is actually a very, even though it, people might think it's homogeneous because it happens to be, a, you know, Jewish country, there are people from all over the world who have moved to Israel, and there are hundreds of countries represented within the cuisine of um, Israel. So you have a lot of uh, markets that just have, you know, Eastern European and North African, and um, this is what the book does so well, is it kind of brings you into those markets, and it shares recipes, and I've been to a lot of those markets myself, and looking through the book, I just, it really took me there. So travel through books. Yes. That sounds wonderful. We are going to travel for just a moment away from the show and into who is our sponsor. You know it's our 10th anniversary. Did you know we've been on the air for 10 years entirely out of the generosity of our members who are mostly listeners like you, grants and our underwriters? That's because Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. We're kind of like public radio, except instead of a tote bag, You get pizza gear and food stuff when you become a member. So think about it while we're on the break and we find out who the amazing company is who's sponsoring this show. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. 
Brooklyn Ball Factory uses the best ingredients to make Japanese comfort food, like their bento boxes featuring meatballs, grilled veggies, Japanese fried chicken, or pork shabu-shabu. Plus, visit Brooklyn Ball Factory's sister restaurants, Momo Sushi Shack, Samurai Papa, Samurai Mama, Bozu, and Kitade Shokudo. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. And today, on the last show of the summer season, we're taking a look at what's coming up this fall. And it's an exciting time. I feel like it's a crazy time. I feel like everything is possible, not possible. Lots of choices about what to do. We did some exciting things this season on Her- on Tech Bites. We did a collaboration with the weekly news show, which is Meet N3. We were just discussing the title. Yeah. Meet N3, Meet N3. Um, on a crazy video game called Farming Simulator, yes. which is a computer game, which is building a farm and running a farm. It is, like, wildly popular, too. It's so popular, it's in the 19th edition, and they're doing their own competition for money. What? You know, like, eSports? Like, there's a whole yeah. thing about eSports yeah. now. They, like, got... They're, like, we're now starting our own eSport league where people are going to compete to farm. And it's 250,000... Yeah. Was it euros or dollars? I think it was euros. Cause euros, because it it's in Europe. Okay. It, yeah. Um, John Deere farming equipment... There are two farmscapes. One is British, one is American. Yeah. The big news was that the John Deere tractors were finally going to be available in the game. Mm-hmm. John Deere finally allowed them to use like their trademarks Very exciting. and stuff. My mind's exploding oh, right now. So it was a great. It was a great episode, and it was unique for this show because it was a collaboration with another show, and we also did a phone-in interview, which we don't ever really do. Yeah. Um, some of the farming simulator company folks were stateside for a video game conference, e-games conference. And we also had two of the... Our interns? Your interns on Meet and 3 do packages and interviews. So we had some, some like, packaged stories, which was exciting also. So that would be a great thing to do, I think, again, coming into the fall. What are you guys looking at covering this fall? I know you always have more topics than you have airtime. Let's see. I'm pulling up my like sheet right now, like what we're going to talk about. I can talk about some of this, the things that happened this season. Broad topics, yeah. maybe things that you're looking forward to. So the big thing that keeps coming up is like, I feel like there's a lot of folks in our circle that are are, be, are, are pregnant this fall. And so we want to do a show about like pregnancy myths of what you can not and can't Not in eat. this current circle, not, just in case anybody's listening. I'm not making any announcements. <laughs> I know my dad always listens to the show, so. No. That's not on this show. Not That's on a this different show. show. But yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, I've been around a lot of folks lately who have been like, I can't eat cheese or I can't eat, you know, That's shellfish. That's called Whole30. Or... That's true. I guess pregnancy <laughs> equals Whole30. Um, so yeah, that might be a show that we dive into because there are some things that surprised me. I thought it was like booze and raw food, but it goes way beyond that. Can you eat honey if you're pregnant? I think so, but I don't know. I have something to interject who might be an interesting uh, interview guest. Yeah. 
Adam Gopnik, the writer for The New Yorker, uh-huh. spent a year or two living in Paris with his family, and he wrote a series of essays for The New Yorker about that experience and then published them in a book called Paris to the Moon, I believe. And they moved there, and he had, um, they had a son who was, I guess, three or four-ish. Mm-hmm. And his wife was pregnant with baby number two while they were there, so she saw a French doctor and had her yes. second pregnancy in France. And so there are some of the chapters that talk about the difference between the experience of being pregnant in America and being pregnant in France. And some of those differences have to do with... Wine? Yes. And cheese. <laughs> and salads. <laughs> Apparently they recommend you drink wine but not eat raw vegetables and salad because that's potentially not good for you because of you know the dirt. Mm-hmm. And apparently yeah. you can't garden... Like, if you're an avid gardener, you are not allowed to garden while you're pregnant because of, like, E. coli risks and things like that. Same with the salad. Yeah, same. This isn't edible, but I think you can't scoop litter either. Mm, that makes sense. Same. Yeah. Similar. Same. Mm. I mean, take that reprieve all you can, I guess. Yeah, you I, know? Would, I would spread a lot <laughs> of rumors about not being able to do various household chores. <laughs> can't do it! <laughs> the what to expect while you're expecting book says I can't do it. So that might be interesting yeah. to... to to parallel the advice yeah. in different, different cultures and different countries based on, you know, what the, what the uh, cultural food thing yeah. is. I, and, I it, and it changes in, within cultures, too. Like, you know, it used to be that you, oh, a glass of wine was fine, and then it wasn't fine at all, and now it's fine again. It's, who knows? I want to know if Guinness helps with breast milk production, because I've heard that, too, and that's fascinating. Okay, I'm writing all these down. <laughs> They're all great. I should mix them up, too, just to, like, throw you a couple of curveballs. No, th- those were real. Those were real. Yeah, we have to do the research. The Adam Gopnik book is delightful. Yeah. If you like that kind of thing. It's very, there's, I think he's a really great writer, and he captures so many of the French-ness of living in Paris. It's fascinating. It's very good. Um, I also want to shout out that we've done three episodes this season featuring our Hall of Fame inductee so those are really great to listen to because they pull from um our twelve thousand episode archive um and you can hear some of the clips of really smart people talking about food yeah or just listen to this show yeah that too who are the inductees um we gosh, oh, there's a lot like of them. hundreds at this point yeah so every show has been able to nominate someone every single month for this year because you know like some shows have been on for many years now and there's a lot of people we can induct. So, I th- yeah, I don't, I don't know the number, but we'll count it up at the end of the year and see where we are. We've had fewer nominations on this show. And the reason being, we have a lot of entrepreneurs. And not that entrepreneurs can't grow into people who have a Hall of Fame legacy. If you've only been in business for six months and you're pressure testing an idea in an incubator, you're not quite Hall of Fame yet something to aim for something to aim for um we could maybe have like a potential category hall of fame potential Mm. um most likely two perhaps but our first hall of famer that we nominated in january was mitchell davis also one of the big top jewish food cook people he was in the black and white cookie story was he i'm sure he he's the one who defined it as a cake and not a cookie he's the one who told me about the donut pub ones which i had tasted on my own but he's a very big fan and he loves them even though a lot of the time they're not that great mm-hmm. and he's from canada which is like the big surprise curveball mm-hmm. whoa mm-hmm. yeah whoa. also also former hrn host 
Yes. So we were also talking just before the show about some trends that you've been seeing, which you think are going to break in the fall. And I want you to talk about your recent one, if you can, because it's very fascinating. We were starting to talk about it before the show, but didn't really get into it. So now we can. Platter salads? Platter salads. So my editor... You heard it here uh, first, bowl people. I'm really interested in um, whether people really see this or, or not, but I just noticed that myself, like as a home cook and then also just as an observer of food, that salads seem to have gone lateral and they seem to be um, dishes that you compose, that you layer more than dishes that you put in a bowl and just toss all together. And obviously, most people probably toss salads at this point, but I noticed enough of a change that the face of salad seemed to be different and the way I like to eat salad seems to have shifted. And I think about it more like you're putting together a sandwich. Like when you put together the components of a sandwich, you're pretty deliberate about, you know, people get very passionate about does the tomato go next to the bun or, you know, does the lettuce, the barrier, the moisture between the condiment and the tomato. <laughs> it's like people can talk about these things and, and write about these things and they really care. Um, and, I, and I feel like salads are kind of undergoing a similar um, thoughtfulness. And I decided to, you know, first of all, my editor at the Wall Street Journal was very kind and she let me write about this. And it was kind of a hunch. A lot of stories that I write, um, I, I, I know what I'm going to find to a certain degree because there's so much evidence of it out there. And this one was a little more of an um, observation that seemed somewhat banal on the surface. And I was curious to see if I would find something. And, and I did. I spoke to... Um, the woman who wrote the Saladish cookbook, Eileen Rosen, she owns R&D Foods in uh, Prospect Heights, and she won a James Beard Award for a book on salads. And I mean, it's just fascinating. I felt like I was unlocking this treasure trove of salad thoughtfulness because she had thought all of this out. And I spoke to Yotam Adolangi, who I feel like I wrote in the article that he put vegetables on the A-list. I feel like he did a lot to kind of propel vegetables into like the most exciting category of foods you can be eating right now. Um, and he also had a very evolved view of, you know, when you dress the salad and how you apply the dressing and, you know, the colors and the textures and how they all come together. And then the third chef I spoke to is Joshua McFadden, who had the Six Seasons book. And um, he was uh, probably the most reticent of the three. But, um, you know, he just felt like if you plate salads instead of putting them in a bowl, you have a lot more control over dressing them and how they're going to taste. And um, there are four recipes that ran with a story. But it's really a story that gives people freedom to just think differently about their salads. You know, you can um, plate a salad by putting, like, for instance, in the Joshua McFadden series of recipes that went with the story, he has a tonado sauce, which is mm. basically a ten, uh, to tuna mayonnaise. It's like tuna mayonnaise and olive oil. like That you serve with the veal tonado. Yes. Mm. And he did like an interpretation of a salad niçoise. And it's just a huge platter with, you know, a very generous quantity of tuna mayo on the plate, kind of the same way you would plate hummus, and then just, you know, uh, pickled string beans and regular string beans and uh, just all, like, herbs and croutons and in a very particular order, and it's just, it's a real feast for the eyes, and every single bite yields a delicious taste, and, you know, you're not going to have all the hard and heavy bits falling on the bottom of the bowl, you're not going to have 
herbs get trampled by the heartier ingredients. Like dressing receptacle receptacle at the bottom where everything gets overdressed at the bottom. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's a total control freak's guide to making salad. But you know, if you give it a shot, I think that especially in the fall when you're roasting vegetables and you're putting roasted vegetables together with raw vegetables and it's a really fun way to think about your meal. So do you think the trend is about control and about replicating every bite and sort of, you know, that aspect of having it be flat and on a plate or do you think it's driven by digital media and Instagram and the overhead shot and things being controllable if they're flat and in layers and also more visual than in a bowl? I think Instagram and food porn have a lot to do with it. I think that having a good bite has a lot to do with it. I think people going to the farmer's market and getting beautiful expensive vegetables and really wanting to you know, do justice to those ingredients that they took a lot of care to procure and pay for. I think that has a lot to do with it. It's, that's why it was so much fun reporting the story because it started as a kind of, in my mind, a slightly silly observation. And then it ended up really being about how people are valuing vegetables so much. It ended up being about the digital medium as it always does with food these days. <laughs> um, and and yeah, it ended up being about the thoughtful approach to uh, a dish that maybe was just rumble jumbled together in a bowl and thought as you know a side dish and now it's really taken front and center as the main event i always think i often think about the future as being the past as precedent set by many of our cinematic favorites like blade runner you know the future is the past you know stylistically (laughs) and all that it's if you look at blade runner number one it was very you know 80s. Classic. Yeah. No, no, the, but the uh, the way they dressed and everything was like very, it was like very Hollywood glamour, uh. like 20s, 30s, you know, very different. Anyway, weren't salads used to be, didn't salads used to be served on platters and plates? I'm thinking back to, you know, I have a, my joy of cooking that I use is I think a 65, 1965-ish edition that still has the original drawings and things like that. I have some other... American cookbooks from that era, and I'm thinking of Waldorf salads and things like that, which I believe were served for luncheon on platters. I would, you know, I didn't look at the history, which is like kind of crazy because I'm a huge nerd. Um, so I'm actually surprised by that, but I, I mean, I, I definitely would be tickled if that was the case, if this is like a what's old is new again. I might use the computer to Google as soon as we're <laughs> off the air to check it out. So so often when you are a journalist and a specialist in your arena, you're looking around at things and then you have a broader spectrum of information that you're inputting. So you get to see trends bubble up like that. Are you seeing any other trends you think that are bubbling up? And then the the reciprocal question to that is anything you see going away? Oh, my God. Do you, Kat? <laughs> and then to you, I would also put it to the lens of what you see in terms of what people are pitching and what listeners are responding to mm-hmm. and what kind of feedback you hear. Gosh. Well, I, I can jump in if, if yeah, you Yeah, go want. ahead. I'm going to think about it. Um, it was really interesting. I picked up a copy of, oh, shoot, Gather Journal. Um, I was upstate this weekend, and I hit one of those many, like, bougie farm shops that sell perfect produce you know, all beautifully arranged in a still life on a table and then like really expensive linens and copies of $20 Palo Santo. Yes, that place. (laughs) So I, I was really taken. I'd never seen gathered journal. Um, 
out in the wild. I'd only seen friends posting about it. And to be honest, I don't know as much about it as I'd like to, but it is a visually riveting, um, like just beautiful food magazine. Do you guys know, know more about Gather Journal than I do? I know I've seen it, but I don't think I know more than you. It's not a startup. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, I just, I, I noticed this in Gather Journal and I also, this is like a very nebulous thing I'm noticing and I wonder if you guys are seeing it also like vibes are really part of food these days like I think maybe it's the moon juice influence or something but there were a lot of vibes in the recipe titles and I loved it because it almost um it seemed like a really whimsical take on on food and kind of how food makes you feel versus only what's in the dish in like a very literal way. And I wish to God that I just had one example to share with you. But um, I feel like, weirdly, this is just me, you know, riffing on what's knocking around in my head. But I think it there's a lot of um, love for like plant-based foods and vegan foods. And I'm seeing a lot of, you know, like cashew milk this and, you know, seaweed that. But it's all coming out in a very, like, kind of beautiful, sensual, funky, like, nouveau, hippie sort of way. And this is... Um, bohemian, bohemian, I think, might be the word you're looking for. I, like, bougie bohemian. It's like an aesthetic layer of, like, wellness. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like it's an age of Aquarius for the 21st mm-hmm. century. And it's really fun to watch it unfold because it's so current and it's just has this shiny beautiful like sheen of youth on it and I haven't quite figured out how to describe it or articulate it. Is it different from goop? I think goopy is goopy. I think it's goopy but I think it's like also dirty. The next generation? Mm. Well because you're in the yard with the dirt. Yeah. It's more down to earth. Yeah I think it's earthy. But still really expensive. Hopefully like not so many just like claims too. Are you guys seeing this or do I sound like a lunatic? No I'm going to build on that. Because I what originally I was thinking is that like I think simplicity in food has been a talking point for a while now but i'm seeing three ingredient banana pancakes yeah but i'm i think i'm seeing a couple different a couple different routes that that's happening and just in like kind of different worlds one relates to this because i'm seeing like california cuisine and like there's gertie's that opened earlier that's the 80s in williamsburg somebody needs to call jonathan waxman it's kind of 80s but like cross with the moon juice vibes and, 60s. And then you have like, I think... She Coast, takes us to the 70s. I think we're in the 70s then. Yeah, maybe. I don't know where we are. I think we're somewhere in between the 60s and 70s with this. And then you have... I just saw a new place open called Coast and Valley in Greenpoint, which is a California wine bar in Brooklyn. And they have like a poached chicken breast with cucumbers and avocado fanned out beside it. So it's On a like, platter? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On like a big round dish so like that's one way that people i think are are trying to go with like simple food your natural wine your that vibe i think also the simple food though is being has to multitask because part of your good vibes thing is that food is very simple it's also nourishing and then it's the duality of the nourishing in the social cultural shared sense but also nourishing in the what can your food do for you in a functional, medicinal, aptogen, high vibration kind of way? Definitely. And then I think the other... CBD. The other, yeah. The other route Asterisk that it's taking... CBD. Is like... Full spectrum. <laughs> the other thing I'm seeing, which is like more of this... Has anyone pitched a CBD show yet? Oh, 
not a show, but we've got we get a lot of CBD pitches. Okay. Yeah. Just curious. Which is a whole thing. Because mm-hmm. um, we can't say cannabis on our website and like use our Google grant. That's a whole thing. Oh, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. I would like to do a show on that, but probably can't. We can we can see. Okay. Um but anyway, so the other like simple food I'm seeing is and speaking of like diasporas, is like I think more people are really working to push that Southern food equals the African diaspora. Mm. And you see like JJ Johnson opening field trip in Harlem and like focusing on rice and like rice being this like bedrock of um, African and Southern cuisine, like specifically West African. And I think more people are trying to embrace that and look at Southern ingredients through the lens of West Africa. And I think that that's really cool and exciting. Um, That might just be that I'm like only following Southern chefs, but No, it makes a lot of sense to see it through that lens and it puts it on a global continuum that just kind of enriches the the narrative in a way that just looking at it as a regional southern food, you know, which is also very, you know, a very rich narrative. But I don't know, you just kind of, you you blew my mind twice during this (laughs) radio session, I must say. Not easy to do for a lady who's so well-read and well-traveled. Before we close the last episode of the summer season i do want to make sure everybody gets to shout out some different things we love to have listeners we love the podcast we love that you can take it with you and that we can archive twelve thousand episodes and growing thanks to technology but we really like it when we do things in real life and gabriella has been moderating a bunch of really interesting panels about the books you can hear those things come to life and see them so tell us some of the things you're going to be doing this fall and where people can find you and how they can find you. Thank you, Jen. Um, I have two uh, Jewish food talks coming up in November. Uh, One of them is a conversation with Gail Simmons, Melissa Clark, Alana Newhouse, and Jeffrey Yaskowitz, who all contributed to the 100 Most Jewish Foods book. Um, I did the project together with Alana, and that's going to be at Temple Emmanuel on um, 65th and 1st. And it's an amazing venue for talks in general. They get the most incredible people, like former presidents, and it's really a great place to know about. Um, And also, I've been doing food talks there for a few years, and they're fun, and sometimes there's food. (laughs) <laughs> and um, there's going to be one the following week if you can't make it. Um, did I say November 5th for that talk? No, you said November, but the 5th is good. So the 5th is going to be the 100 Most Jewish Foods talk, and there will also be a book signing. And then on the 12th, I'm going to have um, my uh, next round of food talks with Symphony Space will be kicked off with Leah Koenig and Adina Sussman. That's why this Jewish food is so top of mind because these things are just around the corner and they're going to be talking about um, Jewish food writ large but also specifically their own books, Sababa and uh, the Jewish cookbook and they'll be signing those. And um, this is way down the road but I'm really excited about it. Um, In March, I'm going to be talking to Madhur Jaffrey and Priya Krishna (gasps) Um, they, they have really fresh takes on Indian food with Indianish and with Instant Pot Cookbook, and I'm so excited. I feel like Indian food also is very popular right Absolutely. now and really trending. Yes. Very, very trending. How can people find more information? How can people follow you on Instagram and Twitter? They can follow me at Gabby Writes, G-A-B-I-W-R-I-T-E-S, and uh, Temple Emanuel's website and Symphony Space will both have information about the food talks. Fantastic. Kat, we know we can go to heritageradionetwork.org. 
for all the events and the 411. So the gala is November. November 11th, save the date. I do have one more thing I can plug. I do have one new show I can plug that we've announced. We haven't talked about any of the new shows because, A, we like to be very stealth and release them with much fanfare, but B, you know, it's nice to surprise people. We want to surprise you. But we did announce one. We're going to be collaborating with the New Food Economy on a podcast. Yes, and we had a writer from the New Food Economy on last week. Who was it? Her name is Claire Brown. She's a staff reporter. um, And she broke this story. She was talking about her amazing Grubhub website gate story. The story where she was at a... I think it was a it was a community it was a hearing for restaurants to talk to the delivery services about mm. some about the how much they were actually tipping how much it, it's about it's a it's a it's a complex thing but yeah. basically when you call a restaurant if you call them through the phone number that's listed on Grubhub or Seamless or even sometimes a faux website that Grubhub and Seamless has set up right Grubhub gets a commission. Mm-hmm. And if the restaurant thinks that that phone call did not result in a sale, they can dispute it and not pay commission. And it turns out, so vis-a-vis the meeting where restaurant owners were allowed to talk to representatives and ask, not allowed, but were in a forum to talk and ask questions about this policy and you know, government officials were taking a look at, you know, is it really appropriate or not? She was sitting next to a woman in the audience who was trying to put up a website for her restaurant and found that the domain name had already been purchased and the domain name was purchased by Grubhub. And that they had actually stockpiled between Grubhub and Seamless about 30,000 restaurant websites kind of unbeknownst to the restaurant owners, although theoretically restaurant owners had agreed to it when they signed off on whatever it was that they signed off on it. That's pretty gross. It's wild. So it created a whole thing. There was a series of, of articles and feedback and, and public point of view. Chuck Schumer called for a little bit of an investigation. And at the end, the final, the final story was, or not the final, but the current installation, installment to the story, which happened around August 2nd, <coughs> Grubhub's giving the restaurants the websites. Good. So that's what kind of our show is going to, with them, it's going to be daily-esque. I mean, like, it's going to be able to give you a look inside their newsroom. And is Trevor how, Noah coming? His who? Trevor Noah. Uh, no, not not the daily show, oh. like the daily New York Times, like the podcast. Is gonna, he coming? We're getting Michael Barbaro. Are we guys. getting Michael Barbaro? No, because he's he's on my top five. He's on my top five list of like amazing, he's amazing dream guests. He's really great. I love Michael Barbaro. Never met him. Yeah, just listen to him. I think he'd be a great guest for this. He show. would be an amazing guest for this yeah. show. Um, I love that podcast. It's. I mean, listen to it daily. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, we're excited. It's going to be called the Digest. Um, and it's we're excited. We're is it going to be every day or weekly? Weekly. Yeah. Okay, we that's a really good name, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we announced it last month in Denver. We had a little launch event at um, Safta in Denver, Alon Shaya's restaurant. Speaking of Jewish food, that's that is an amazing restaurant. Oh, I want to go there. Restaurant. Um, so yeah, we're gonna be releasing episodes in the fall, and we have some things up our sleeves. And Kate. Uh, Cox and Joe Fassler, who are the editors at New Food Economy, are going to be basically kind of 
the face of that podcast. So that's really exciting for the fall. That is very exciting. We talked about that briefly when she was here, but yeah. we didn't want to talk about it on the air. Yeah. Well, it's out. It's out there now. New food economy. Lots of great stories. Lots of good great stuff coming reporting. up. Yep. And it's nice to have things that are timely and newsy like that. Totally. That'll be a fantastic collaboration. Yeah, we're excited. So to sum it up, Jewish food, black and white cookies, buy the books, come to the gala, and listen. And if you love the show and you love the 12,000 episodes and you love the idea of the digest and Meat Plus 3 and you want to hear more stories from people like Gabriella, as soon as you stop listening to this podcast, go to heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate and become a member. Maybe, you know, donate what you spend on donuts this week or this month. Or cookies. Or cookies. Or frosting. <laughs> or anything. If you designate your donation to Tech Bites, I will send you something special along with my undying love. I want to thank Kat Johnson and Gabriella Gershenson for coming out to the studio on this last episode of the summer season. Come back and see us in the fall. Tech Bites is broadcast live on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, your host and producer. Matt Patterson is our engineer. Our theme song, Nomad a CPU Track, is by DJ Uptown Nico. You can find us on social media at TechBytesHRN and on all your favorite podcasting platforms, including iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.